Welcome to the Daily Business Hustle Podcast. My name is Alexander Vitkin. I'm the creator and founder of the Daily Business Hustle. On this podcast, I share with you my top unbiased business advice, sales advice, and I talk to the world's top experts in their fields related to business. Hey guys, this is uh, Alex, and I'm here with uh, Colin Therio. And uh, he's actually a retired copywriter who used to do seven and eight figure launches for clients. And now he runs the, well, the biggest mastermind for copywriters on Facebook that I'm aware of. Um, and it's a, his full-time business, so he doesn't do any client work anymore. And it's actually one of the, probably the most active group community on Facebook that I'm aware of. So he it's gotten to the point where he even teaches people how to start their own communities. And he teaches people how to write copy. Um, and... Like uh, current, like this year, he's expecting to make. Uh, let's see, how much was it? Uh, two hundred to two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars from uh, this group, which is fourteen thousand people on uh, in his Facebook group. So it's his full time business. Okay. So uh, welcome, Colin. Hi, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, being on here. So you have probably the toughest audience in history to write copy to. It's all apprentice copywriters and uh, successful copywriters so right what are some of your uh, tips that you have for uh, for my audience on how to write copy um i would say the the biggest tips that i could have for someone just starting out that would cover mistakes that they might be making would be um particular particularly when you're writing for the internet keep in mind the mode people are in when they consume content on the internet. They're usually by themselves on their personal computer or device. Um, the The mindset that that puts people in is that uh, they're in a, a one-to-one communication channel, right? Because it's just them and their computer, and they're usually by themselves and focused on it. Um, you know, unlike a billboard or a TV show that they might be watching with the family or something, right? So the communications you make to be consumed via the internet should keep that in mind as far as, uh, like, if it's a sales letter, it should be from one person written as though it's to one person. Uh, Same thing with emails that you might send to your list. You don't want that to be, uh, you know, hey, guys, you know, it should be written as though it's written to that one person who's reading it. Um, so that would be one tip. Another tip would be uh, a lot of people get caught up in thinking of copywriting as being uh, very artistic or creative in the way that writing a novel might be. And it's less that and more about using uh, a structure and a format that you know has been successful elsewhere and trying to replicate that uh, with whatever it is that you're selling. Um, Because sales, uh, selling processes are a lot more structured and orderly and you can sort of go through more of a checklist and you can worry about the creativity once you've sort of gotten all the big pieces out of the way. So for example, if you're writing an offer, and you have some kind of guarantee, usually like your credit card processor will make you have some sort of money back refund window that you have to honor anyway. So I say if you're you're, you're uh, required to do it, you may as well put it explicitly in your copy and take advantage 
of the risk reversal effect it might have. So a guarantee is something that would improve the conversion on almost any piece of copy. And you don't have to be very creative to write a good guarantee. Like you just have to state it pretty plainly and let people know they can get their money back if they want to. Um, so that that's an idea to keep in mind that don't think of it as this art form or this uh, sort of craft that you have to spend years and years developing. It's really fast and easy to learn if you do it, uh, you know, sort of jump into the, the creek, you know, head first and uh, actually get some copy out there with traffic going to it and learn what's working and what's not. And uh, that'll serve you a lot better than, you know, studying and studying and studying. Uh, just got, get out there and actually write copy and see what works. Makes sense, yeah. So, um, and if they don't have any audience to write to, like, what would you recommend? When you're involved in a particular niche as a copywriter and you want to write copy for that space, you're probably already looking in that space to see what's being launched, what kind of copy there is, what are the good products that people are promoting. So I would say look in your own niche and find people who are releasing products fairly frequently so those are people that need copy and buy a lot of it then find spots in their business whether it's in their email sequence whether it's on their sales pages or their videos or their upsells where you feel like there's something missing that you can add that you could do better and then offer to do that and say you know if you want to try it and it works then we can talk about uh, payment. It'll be real cheap, but uh, I'm looking for more work. So let's call this a foot in the door. Something like that. That's a way to use other people's traffic to um, sort of get your foot in the door and build up a career. Now, if you have zero experience, I wouldn't recommend trying to sell your services to clients if you haven't successfully sold anything. The trick there is uh, hone your skills on your own sales material for yourself. And at the point you're getting clients and people want to give you money for your services, you know you're at least good enough to sell because you've convinced them to buy from you. So then I would say take what you did for yourself and try to apply it to their business. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, so moving on to the next topic... You run a group with around thirteen thousand people, and that's just you know that's just a big group. You have a second group with how many people is it now? Um, I think the the jobs group is uh, approaching two thousand, right? If I'm not mistaken. Awesome. So, how do you run these groups as a business? Because I mean, lots of people have big groups, and usually it's like this huge mess of uh, people just spamming each other and nothing really goes right. on. But you run a uh, mid, almost mid-figure, a mid-six-figure business from it, so how do you do it? Um, there are several ways that I monetize the group, um, and they have to do with the, the way I chose the topic, and the topic of the group is, of course, copywriting. So that's something I know already that people spend money to learn and invest in. So I know it's a, a, a topic that has money being spent as part of it, right? Um, so that's the first thing. If you need a topic that is something that people will spend money on somewhere. Yeah. Then once you start the group, 
where a lot of people mess up is um, they don't look at the group as a way to generate user-generated content, which is what you want the group to be. You want it to be a self-refilling source for content on that topic because that's what gets people addicted to the group. That's what makes them visit frequently. Um, the trick to doing that is in recruiting people you find that post a lot about that topic and giving them a reason to post in your group and that usually is as simple as giving them like really great feedback when they post in your group inviting them to saying hey I have an audience that loves this stuff can I repost this or even better if you join the group you'll get all the comments and then you drive comments by leaving a great comment yourself your audience pipes in and then that person is encouraged the next time they have something in that vein they'll come back to your group and post it right so at at some point you have enough of people like that that comment frequently that post frequently that the content of the group sort of runs itself so then that part's taken care of you don't need to worry about content as the group owner once it hits that tipping point um once you're in that point, it's like uh, having an email list that's self-warming. Like, you don't ever have to warm them up because they're sitting in the group all day, every day, keeping themselves warm on whatever your topic is. Then it's very simple to just offer products. I don't do affiliate products, but other of my uh, uh, students have done affiliate products, and they work just the same. I offer my own training products, but they're related directly to the topic of the group. So if you're interested in what we're talking about in the group, the products are already, I guess you would say, pre-desired. It's the kind of thing that those people would buy anyway. So from that point, it's not really a hard sell to say, hello, huge group of people who obviously love copywriting. Would you like my sales letter template? Here's where you can buy it. And it doesn't feel like, um, it doesn't feel like I'm launching products into their face it seems like a very natural offer to make one copywriter to another um, peer to peer as opposed to you know oh I'm the guru at the top of the mountain and I'm the expert and here's this product you need to buy because I'm so smart um, the products aren't really in that vein they're much more like here's what I used in my own career um, and now you know if you buy this training I'll show you how to use it uh, in your own business Okay, and uh, can you describe your uh, fun a little bit? Because I understand you're uh, giving them these uh, possibilities to buy from you, but how do you do it? Like oh, sure, yeah. Um, what it is, the, the way I do products inside the group, like I said, it's, it's the whole group is focused on driving those conversations that are happening in the moment. So the kind of products that I think work best in that environment are live trainings. So whenever I want to offer a new training or think of like this would be a product that's good to sell the group the way I create it is um, I set up a live webinar and I have people uh, pay to attend the live recording of that webinar and they get a copy of the recording as well and it'll be very tightly focused and it's usually based on a conversation that just happened in the group so, for example, at one point, there was a large conversation about how do I write email sequences that have a lot of promotions 
but that won't cause promotional burnout in the list where they feel like all I'm sending them are advertisements. Um, so I created a training around that specific topic, invited people to attend live, and now I just package up that recording and sell the recording to new members as the group grows. Um, and over the course of the group, uh, the group's existence, which has just been a couple of years now, um, I have like six or seven original trainings that are just me. And then what I've started doing this year is having guests come in and teach on an aspect that I don't know, but that's useful to copywriters. And we use the same setup. We invite people to attend a live training where they can ask questions and interact. And then uh, I sell the recording afterwards. Um, so that's the bulk of the business model for the group. And then other things I've done are like I've sold uh, consulting packages. So if you're an expert and you have this kind of group, that's something people will buy off of you. Um, I've sold uh, a monthly newsletter, which is uh, basically an original article from me and a collection of links to good conversations in the cult from times past that people might have missed because they weren't a member then. Um, so that's a recurring. And then I also have, like you mentioned, the mastermind where I teach people how to build their own Facebook groups the way that I have. And that's a recurring uh, also. So it's been neat trying all these different uh, monetization models inside of uh, what's basically a self-warming list. Because basically th there's... There hasn't been anything I've thought of related to copy to try to sell inside the group that people haven't been very positive and responsive to. I've even sold t-shirts hmm. for members. So like merchandising is even a possibility if you have like a cool group identity that people like being a part of that community. Gotcha. And um, what kind of deals do you make with these experts that you get from the outside to come teach your, um, your uh, audience? Um, usually the way I pick it is that it's someone who has some business component that I actually want to learn for myself because then I know I'll ask really good questions that my audience will uh, get good information out of. Um, so it's usually people that I know and follow and then what we work out, depending, the, the you know, there's negotiation back and forth, but the, the main offer is... Um, we split the training on the front end, and then um, these are obviously marketers that sell things on the back end, and they can make their offer on the back end as long as the content that they gave was worth the price that people paid to attend. Like, it can't be a pitch. It, it can have a pitch at the end, but it has to be content. Um, and then they keep all of the back end, and I keep all of the front end on the recordings after we split the initial, you know, launch when it's a live training. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a good deal as well. <laughs> um, yeah, what I want, what I want is just to keep it simple. I want to be able to sell that training forever in the cult of copy to future members as the group grows and to just make that convenient um, where I just keep the whole front end. I let the uh, guests keep the whole back end and then that way I'm basically advertising them forever for free in this paid product. And then, you know, whatever they get on their end, they get to keep. Got it. Okay, so moving on to the next topic. Um, sure. 
So anyone who's ever run a group on Facebook or any kind of community, I'm sure they've uh, come up with this problem, and that is the balance between keeping the group active but orderly at the same time. So how do you keep it, um, you know, from getting out of control with thirteen thousand people while still being sure. active? Um. Several things that I implemented early on were uh, deliberate and keeping it to be um, very low spam, very well behaved, um, very community oriented where the members respect the place and they feel like uh, there's such a strong sense of community they're sort of self-policing. And the things that I did to do that first were um, a lot of people feel the urge to make like really complicated, all-encompassing lists of rules and post those in the about section or in a sticky post to try and enforce a certain kind of behavior or um, decorum onto the group. And the problem with that, I feel like if you open the group with a bunch of requirements for how you have to behave once you come in, people... It, it, it attracts two kinds of people. One, it attracts the kind of people that, that are very strict and rules-oriented and get bothered and tattle a lot if they think someone's breaking the rules. So that would take away your time as an admin. And then it also attracts the kind of person that wants to take what they want from the group and figure out whatever weaselly way they can around the wording of those particular rules to say, no, but it was okay because I didn't break any of the rules. So what happens if you if you instead make it very vague and just let people know that they're being monitored and anything they do that would take away from the spirit of the group will be dealt with? What it forces people to do is sort of behave themselves and act like grown-ups. If you treat people like grown-ups, they tend to rise to that challenge. Um, so the group tends to not have a lot of silly nonsense to begin with, but then when people violate it, it's very obvious and they're dealt with swiftly and usually publicly where if someone spams the group or posts something that's not acceptable um, depending on what it is I might let them stay in the group and then engage them harshly where I call them out and ask them why they're you know sort of crapping in the group and upsetting people and the reason I do that is because it lets the community know that they're being policed that there's a sheriff that cares about the quality of the group And then what happens from that point forward is um, whenever something that doesn't belong in the group gets posted, the members are the ones who jump in and ridicule and run the violator out of the group um, instead of me having to do it. And the reason you want to do that is because you don't want things to live too long in the group that don't belong in the group because then people don't realize those things don't belong there. So if you run a group and you have a spam problem and you let spam posts linger for days, people who are members of the group have to conclude you must allow that kind of thing. So their perspective on what the group is supposed to be about changes and they start to devalue it if that happens. So instead, you need to create a culture in the group that very rapidly identifies and attacks spammers and outsiders and people posting things that don't belong there. Um so that you don't get, as the group owner, you don't get the penalty of people becoming disengaged and feeling like, you know, this isn't a very high-quality community. Um, So that's what I would recommend is just 
being ruthless. Treat the group as if it's a place that you want to hang out and you want the group to be a place that you would visit. And you're in charge of that. You're the boss. You have to be ruthless about creating that identity and uh, being public about it so that people feel like they're safe there to be you know, active and participate and they don't have to worry about the quality degrading. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So what are some ways you use to grow the group? Because I've seen, I mean, when I joined, it must have been like a year ago, it was uh, in the thousands and now it's 13,000 people and still growing. I, I can see just 300 new members just joined um, in the past week and a half or so. If right. I'm not mistaken. So, uh, what are some ways that you grow the group and do this consistently? Um, the the main thing I did to start with was uh, the group on Facebook grew out of a Skype group that I had, and the Skype group was comprised of just my networking people I was in contact with, either colleagues who were copywriters or clients who bought copy from me or the kind of people who buy copy and it was just a bunch of us we all knew each other from going to marketing events and interacting online um, so I had a small community on Skype and for whatever reason I started spending more time on Facebook so I sort of moved the group over there and I got a domain for it which currently just redirects to the Facebook group so it was easy to share with people um, just cultofcopy.com made it very easy to put, you know, on slides when I gave a talk at a conference or for people to write down when they asked what I did. So from that point on, the networking I did sort of kept growing the group by word of mouth. And then uh, I just sort of got in the habit of mentioning it when I would post other places. So if I was a member of a community someone else's community elsewhere online and someone asked a question that I knew I had already answered in a post in the cult of copy, I would repost the entire thing in that group and just say this is something I already wrote up in my own group the cult of copy. Not even like a URL or anything because if you search it it's easy to find. I just left that little breadcrumb for people to be able to find their way back to my group. Um, then at a certain point once enough members join on Facebook um, Facebook started promoting it for me. Uh, what happens is when you join a group on the desktop interface, in the right-hand column, it'll sometimes show you, you know, this many members of the group you just joined are also members of this other group. And because of uh, copywriting, I guess, being a universal topic in marketing, so many other people in other marketing groups were also in the cult of copy that it was sort of widely advertised that way because I guess Facebook wants to encourage people to become members of groups because that makes them stay on Facebook longer, I guess. So they did a lot of advertising in that manner for me. And I think what it had to do with was uh, when you start a group, you have the option of setting keywords. I would say definitely take advantage of that and carefully select the keywords um, that are going to fit your business because when you type in the keywords it'll show you like the pages or uh, different, I guess it must be tags or some kind of thing where it shows you how many users are following that keyword in some kind of way. So if you tag the keywords correctly, that'll give you a big bite of an audience. And I think what happens is that's how Facebook decides who to show those ads to based on those interests. 
So I would say definitely if you set up your own group, don't skip that part because that's been a big benefit. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um, so what are some tips? Because, I mean, I know you recommend copywriters and there's uh, lists people can buy and uh, you can mm -hmm. hire someone at Odesk. But what are some tips when you're hiring them uh, when you have some to choose from, how do you actually choose one? Because there's so many things that can go wrong in my experience. Sure, sure. So what I would look for is you want to not only have writing samples, um, it helps to have someone who's familiar with selling in your particular niche, but I would say you don't want to... You, you don't want that to have a deal breaker because it's possible someone who hasn't ever written for your particular niche would do a very good job. But what you want to look for is um, making sure that they've written for a bunch of different niches if they haven't written for yours and have had success in different avenues um, because that'll be an indication that uh, they can change voices and angles very well. Um, it's not a detriment some copywriters, myself included, were like very specialized. Like I specialized in business to business marketing software and services, uh, particularly being sold on the internet. And then when I went freelance, I didn't take on jobs that didn't fit in that mold. Like I stayed very focused in my area. But some copywriters have very narrow experience, but will say yes to every job that comes along without realizing that it's, it can be very different if you're not familiar with different modes of selling. Um, so that's a big one. Make sure that they either have experience in your field or have diverse experience, which would indicate even if they don't have experience in your field, they're likely to be able to match it. Um, the next one would be um, making sure you have some kind of safety to where if they don't deliver, you aren't out the entire cost of the copy. So when I was a copywriter, I would do um, half of my fee up front to get started and then half on delivery of the agreed-upon materials. So what that let them know is that I wasn't going to get my full payment if I didn't deliver what I promised on the deadline that we agreed on. Um, that's something that you want to try and get out of writers that you you hire and for writers it's it's difficult because for writers that are good and working and hungry they'll accept that because they know they're still going to get paid because they know they're going to do a good job and then for writers that are already super well established and very elite they're just going to say no like some of those people have the ability to demand full payment up front but it should be obvious based on their uh pedigree and their price whether they're in that category or not you know um, those two would be the biggest just making sure if you're hiring somebody off of Odesk and you're a stranger like I said have good samples make sure they're diverse or at least in your niche and then make sure you're protected so you're not throwing money away if they don't hold up their end of the bargain and then uh, once you find someone good, keep paying them well and you can buy more and more of their time and exclusivity. Um, because if you find someone who's good, the last thing you want them to do is be too busy to take your future projects. 
once some once you find somebody that gets your business and gets your customers, try and get as much work out of them as you can. What do you think about the contracts, like the non-compete contracts that some people uh, want you to sign? Uh, so, for example, if a copywriter wants to work in a very small industry, like uh, I mean, I'm not gonna name any particular ones. Like, let's say <laughs> dating or whatever. Yeah. Um, like dating advice, which is not a very big community, and one of the companies wants them to sign a non, like non-disclosure and like uh, can't compete and all that kind of stuff. Um, depending on the state you live in, generally in the United States anyway, non-competes for that kind of thing are not very enforceable. Um, but I, I've been in a position where I was asked to sign a non-compete and I refused. Like I sent over the signed contract with that part, like deleted out <laughs> because, because I didn't agree to that. And I explained that, you know, because I only work in a small field, unless you are going to pay me my what would equate to my yearly salary for however many years you're saying I can't compete then I can't agree to that because this like that's the reason you hired me is because of that expertise if you want ownership of exclusivity then we can talk about paying for it but no one's ever you know said oh well we'll pay like five years of your full-time <laughs> earnings yeah uh, in order to have you not compete no one ever agrees to that but when you put it that way they they understand, you know, like, I don't, like, this is the field I'm in, and that's why you hired me to write for this product, so I'm not willing to sell you that exclusivity. Um, from the business owner standpoint, I could see why you might want that, but again, the, the idea is uh, you, that person you're trying to hire wouldn't have the expertise they have if they had ever agreed to that kind of exclusivity contract um, because it's the diversity and doing different things for different people that gives them the skill set that will make your offer hopefully as good or better of all the different offers they've done before yours. Um, so I would say it's it's not really beneficial to try and lock a copywriter down. Now a non-disclosure agreement if you have some proprietary thing that you don't want them uh, to leak to a competitor in some way, that kind of thing would be enforceable, and I can totally understand why you would want that, and you would want them to agree to it before they look at the job. And what I would recommend is for a copywriter, if you're uncomfortable with that, if you don't want to deal with it, like I, I was always wary of um, legal issues, so anything that I thought might even have the hint of being a problem I would just avoid and, and go after something easier so if there's a kind of thing where you're you operate only in a certain niche and someone has some non-disclosure that they want you to sign where they don't want you to share it with anyone and you feel like like you wouldn't want them to come back and be able to sue you if you write for a competitor and they claim that you're leaking their proprietary information just avoid it and say look I don't want to sign a non-disclosure so don't even show it to me um, and you know that that way you don't even have to worry about it. Um, but if you write on a high level and you're com you're comfortable keeping people's confidence, and you know you can and you won't get in trouble, then those are okay to agree to. Okay, makes sense. And um, what what do you think of uh, copywriters who, for example, you're hiring a copywriter and he uh, uses templates for everything to the point that I mean it's like too generic almost 
Like, is there such a thing as too generic, or is it just it works, so just use it? Um, it really does depend on your market. So, when when people talk about templates, there's a wide variety of things that that applies to. So, I use and sell my own templates, but the way my templates are are there more conceptual templates rather than very strict wording because I think it's more the ideas and the flow of the story that you're telling that persuades customers rather than very specific wordings, right? So if the template someone's using is almost like Mad Lib style where they only change the product name and the creator's name and like very few variables change, then you can fall into the kind of thing where... Um, if that template is overused in your particular market, customers might see it repeated and it might give them a negative opinion of what you're offering, right? But if the person using that template really doesn't, like, no one in your market has seen that template and it works, there's, you know, it's not the wrong solution. But the way I use my templates, the reason I made them that way is so that you don't end up with a cookie-cutter letter. It's sort of like uh, if your audience is familiar with the, the hero's journey story formula, which is uh, uh, mm-hmm. it's a formula for writing fiction stories, and like every Disney story ever written uses that formula. Every hero tale, every action movie follows that same basic formula but they don't feel like you're watching the same movie over and over and over again. It's the same pattern, but enough of the details change that no one ever really notices that it's a pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, so those kind of templates are what I prefer. Um, but generally speaking, like we talked about before, the order and checklist of things that you need to include in an offer if you want maximum conversions are are pretty universal like i can't think of an offer where having a bonus won't increase conversions i can't think of an offer where having multiple closes where you ask for the sale more than once won't increase conversions you know what i mean there are certain things that no matter what the offer is no matter who the offer is being made to can't help but make the offer convert better you know like uh if you have an offer that doesn't have any kind of price justification, there's no way adding good price justification won't increase conversions, right? It, it can't help but make it better unless you somehow accidentally scare people away, but I've never seen that happen. So with that said, I think, you know, don't be wary of someone who used templates if that template is proven mm-hmm. again and again. You know, that's really what it's about. Copywriting is the only form of writing where you can definitively say this piece is better than that piece when you test it. So if you test it and you make more money with this, who cares if it's written with a template if it performs better, right? Mm-hmm. If if the whole point of running it is to get the maximum amount of sales, whether it's a template or not shouldn't matter as much as the performance does. Okay, makes sense. So, um, I've seen companies with uh, with an audience, like a sizable audience, and they're, it's a tight community like you have, for example, and mm-hmm. the audience is not used to getting 
sold to quite hard, you know. And I've seen right. that an, a copywriter would come in and uh, from the outside, and he would say, "Oh wow, well these guys buy everything from you," and then he would use something of a uh, more hard sell copy um, mm-hmm. that the audience is not used to, and. Uh, like, do, do you believe a list like that can get burnt out in certain situations or, uh, like, like, whoa, what is this? Like, suddenly the guy is selling to me, you know? Well, before right. it wasn't the case. Like, what, what do you, th- what, how can people avoid this or does this even exist? When, yeah, when you, when you have a, a tight community of the kind where people feel like not only do they belong, but in a way it sort of belongs to them too, like they take ownership mentally of that community where they care about it like beyond just the value they get from it you know what I mean where they they feel like they have friends there that it's a place that they go to rather than just a place that has articles they like to read Um, once they cross that barrier it becomes offensive to them when you violate what they feel the spirit of that community is so if you have a community that's not been commercialized suddenly making it commercial feels like a violation of what their expectation is so that's why in my group and when I teach people to build groups if your intent is to monetize it have something to buy literally the first day it's open and stick it in that pin post so that you sort of are reserving the right to sell them things forever because it's always been that way Um, so it's important to create that context then from inside the community like you said when it's an outsider trying to push in people innately can detect that when it's an offer from an outsider and you don't want that but the trick with keeping a community engaged but constantly buying things is let's see what's the best way to explain this so one of the things that no matter what you put a community together about, if it's an activity, if it's something that people do, they're going to have issues that they need to discuss, right? They're going to have questions that they need answers to, and they're going to bring those to the community. They're going to discuss their problems with each other. When you offer things for them to buy, if the things you're offering solve those problems, you almost don't need any sales persuasion whatsoever. You simply need to make them available, because they're right there discussing the problem and if oh over there in the corner I see the solution to the problem we're just talking about I want it and I'm going to go buy it I it, you don't have to sell it to me it's just conveniently right there while I was talking about my issue um, what's good about that is it makes sort of like a passive selling environment and all you have to do is pay attention to the problems that people are talking about and put a solution in their view and they'll notice it and want to grab it and even when you make it part of the conversation explicitly like I said when I offer these trainings and say you know a bunch of posts recently were about email promotions would you guys like to see some training on email promotions if you want to I'll put it together and and we'll go from there that doesn't feel like I'm selling to them. It feels like I'm offering to help them with their problem. It feels like they were asking for it. And the trick with a community to not make them feel burnt out is to constantly tap into that. Let them guide what offers are being offered 
then it feels like you're helping them and doing them a favor instead of trying to ram a product down their neck that they weren't interested in. So that's really the way to do it is like let them steer basically and you don't have to try that hard. You you put three people at a minimum together in a room and they will complain about something within an hour. Like that's just it's going to come up. The whatever they'll like three strangers you put them together, like the early part of the conversation will be like getting to know you, what do you have in common? The second they figure out what they have in common, complaints. Mutual complaints, gripes are what's going to come up, and they'll start talking about their problems. And for any good listener, you can make a lot of money giving people solutions to the problems they complain about. Huh. The, the wonders of running a community. <laughs> right. Awesome. Um, right, so that's a lot of very valuable info. Um, so if people want to get in touch with you, or who, who do you want to get in touch with you, and how would they do that? How do they join your community, for example? Um, if people want to join the Cult of Copy, you just currently you go to cultofcopy.com. That redirects to the Facebook group. I'm working on maybe putting up a blog at that domain, but if you go there, that'll point you to where the community is if we do that. Um, it's not hard to find this. Uh, the, the group is, you do have to request to join, um, and I usually approve those in batches. So if you request, and it takes a couple of days before you get added in, that's just because, like you said, I, I get, you know, a, all, sometimes a hundred a day requests, and then I have to go through them and see which ones are spam bots or anything like that. Um, and it doesn't take long. I just only do it every few days. Um, outside of that, uh, you, can read, uh, you can search my name on Facebook and reach me directly that way if you want. Um, if you're interested in getting jobs as a copywriter or hiring a copywriter, the cult of copy group has a spinoff group for hiring copywriters that you can find inside the group. I don't remember the URL off the top of my head. It's a Facebook URL, but uh, we have a specific group just for that. So if you're the kind of person that's like, I don't want to chit chat about copywriting all day long, but I would love to hire a good copywriter. That would be the way I would do that. But uh, if you just get in touch with me, I can point you in the right direction. That's about it. I try to be easy to reach. And uh, if I can help you in any way, just let me know. Awesome. So, yeah, Cult of Copy, awesome group, guys. You should join it. So, thank you, Colin. Uh, very valuable information. Everyone My pleasure. It. Thanks for having me. All right. This was our show for today. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast if you like it. I'll see you next time. If you'd like to find out more about me, visit vitkin.net. That's V-I-T-K-I-N.net. Thank you for listening to the show and see you next time.